Uh, good evening, everyone. Uh, welcome to the uh, October 25th QPSC. We're going to have to make a adaptation to, to main, maintain quorum for closed session. We'll open up with a roll call, please, and then we will um, uh, open it uh, for any public comment. We'll go into closed session to approve credentialing. That should take less than three to five minutes, and then we'll come back for the regular session. <coughs> Is that acceptable, yeah. Madam Clerk? Doc, uh, I'm sorry. <laughs> One moment, please. Apologies. Double testing here. Um, Trustee Banerjee. Here. Trustee Bouquet. Here. Trustee Esteem. Here. Trustee Sign. Here. We do have a quorum. Thank you. Thank you. Is there any public comment? There is no public comment. Okay. With that, we will, uh, Councillor. Thank you, uh, Chair Bouquet. The Quality Committee of the Board will now go into closed session to consider uh, the first item in the closed session agenda. So everyone, this should this should be less than three to five minutes. Apologies. So, okay, sorry, one, getting the breakout rooms out. Is in the audience. So I have Dr. Lee, Dr. Joshi, and Satira. I guess that's it, right? Yep. In, is that the only one? Uh, is Ms. Satira, does Jennifer Jackson need to be in the room? Uh, she's not joining us this evening. I gave her a pass. Got it. And Dr. Joshi. I have Dr. Joshi. And Dr. Subramanian doesn't need to be in the room for this one either. I don't think so. Yeah, we're getting ready to open it up. All right, opening it up now. Okay. Don't go too far wrong. I promise I'm not bringing water, but I am bringing all of <laughs> So we have Dr. Lee's in the room, Dr. Joshi, Satira. Are we waiting for Ms. Jackson? Uh, we are not. Okay. All right.
Sorry, we've been muted. Oh, we've been muted this entire time. <laughs> ah, interesting. That explains oh, well. so much. That explains a lot. <laughs> Thank you, Council. Uh, uh, we'll go into item C. This is the medical staff report for we hear from our medical staff leaders. Uh, which is our practice. Uh, we're going to take this time to welcome a new medical staff leader to uh, the committee, uh, Dr. Abid Moganam, who is a vascular surgeon, a very well-respected vascular surgeon at San Leandro Hospital. He takes over as the committee chair for the San Leandro Hospital Leadership Committee. Um, uh, so he'll be joining us this evening. Welcome, Dr. Moganam. Thank you for the introduction and for the welcome. Happy to be here. Yeah, this is our second time saying nice things about you because we were on mute, but it's okay. And, and again, I, I do want to give uh, to, the, to the crowd appreciation to Dr. Idris Afzali, who, who has uh, been a lead for the San Leandro Hospital Leadership Committee for uh, effectively, I think, since the merger of the medical staff. So I'm, I, I'm sure we'll continue to hear from Dr. Afzali in one form or another as we keep going. So with that, uh, let's open up with our uh, two chiefs of staff, Dr. Lana Lee, then we'll hear from Dr. Joshi, and then we'll hear from Dr. Magana. Good evening, Dr. Lee. Good evening. Um, we actually had a joint open session with Alameda Hospital and AHS um, MEC, and so we will be together. We're voluming up. Give us one second. Sound check, Lana. Can you hear me? Uh, yes. Much better. Thank you. Okay, great. Sorry about that. Um, so thank you. Good evening, everyone. Uh, we had a joint open session with AHS and Alameda Hospital Medical Exec Committee. And so we'll be doing our report together today. Um, so Dr. Joshi will start with the community portion of our report. Great. Thank you, Dr. Lee. Um, yes, we are combining open session, but um, and as such, we'll be combining a report. But because we're two different independent medical staffs, we'll be reporting together. Um, so under community, we wanted to highlight uh, two major items that are impacting not just Alameda Hospital, but really the system. And so a few weeks ago, we heard from uh, Mr. Fratsky during the Board of Trustees meeting that the Joint Powers Affiliation Agreement meeting had come to conclude a option that is being called 3B as for what we would be doing for the future of Alameda Hospital. So. We are interested in that selection and look forward to meeting with Mr. Presky and learning more. Um, what we understand is the um, the outline of what the bed situation would look like based upon the presentations that have been made in the meetings. And we're curious for the next steps, what clinical services we would be able to offer, what patient care would look like, what throughput would look like. So. I think that we look forward to partnering with Mr. Presky and understanding that at a deeper level. Also in our community, uh, we similarly heard from uh, Mr. Jackson about St. Rose at a very high level that there has been a steering committee looking at what a St. Rose affiliation uh, would be one of potentially three options of what, what could happen with St. Rose. So we also similarly, as a MedStep, look forward to learning more about what a potential partnership um, or affiliation or relationship could look like. And specifically, what would that look like in terms of patient care, clinical services offered, throughput, and also how medical staff services would be involved. And, and we say that knowing how 
our past has gone when we similarly were bringing Alameda Hospital and San Leandro Hospital into the greater AHS community fold. So um, those are three, sorry, those are two huge items and we were excited to hear them presented and look forward to working more with the administration about those. And then I'll turn it back over to Dr. Lee for the remainder of the report. Thank you. Thank you. I'll move on to the quality portion of our report um, where we also heard from Mr. Jackson and I was lucky enough to be able to attend our beta conference um, where the OB department as well as the emergency medicine department both won beta incentive program awards, uh, the OB quest for tier two as well as the ED quest for tier one. Um, additionally, I wanted to speak more about our quality efforts and um, looking at our dashboards. So I'd like to welcome Dr. Charlotte Wills to speak some more um, about that and our uh, quality safety committee. Where would you like this? How about right podium. up front? Oh, with the podium? Yeah. Am I giving a lecture? Yeah. <laughs> You're giving a lecture. <laughs> You're so good at it. No. No. All right. Um, good afternoon, trustees. Thank you for allowing me to be here today. Um, I have the privilege of um, chairing the QSC committee. Um, I inherited this from my predecessor, Dr. Barry Simon. Um, and I will just say on a personal note, I've learned more from being on that committee from a year than I have in probably the rest of my years here at Alameda Health System in terms of just the quality efforts and how expansive they are across the system and just how many departments and services they touch. Um, so each month we have a three-hour meeting that is expansive. It ranges from housekeeping to uh, True North metrics and RCAs and everything in between, um, and then summarize it for the, M uh, the MEC. Uh, Dr. Lee told me to keep this to two minutes. Um, anybody that knows me knows that's very hard for me to do. Mm -hmm. um, so what I will do is summarize the summary I gave to MedExec for, uh, for the True North debt, uh, metrics of, uh, that were reported out last week. And these are for July 2023. These um, follow the steep framework, so that's safety, timeliness, effectiveness, efficiency, equity, patient-centeredness. And overall, um, there are some metrics we're doing very well with. So for safety, um, the CLABS, the um, workforce that you've heard a lot about, that work group, did exceptionally well. We had zero events in September. Um, Coffees are something that we continue to work on, and we're working on it even with our own departments. It's something we met with, met with uh, infection control just yesterday because so many patients board, especially in the Highland Department. So across the system there, we actually have three. We're aiming for zero across both the San Leandro and, Alameda and, and Highland campuses. Um, but we have three, and it's on a, um, that's actually okay. Um, we have zero MRSA events. Um, interestingly, we had one case of C. diff, so that's um, a slight uptick. And then something else has been a big focus is surgical site infections. So there's a whole work group around that. They had zero events in September. Um, falls, that has been something that's plagued the system. It's plagued my department and other areas of the hospital. Uh, there was one event in September. And then this is an area that is for big focus because, again, this feeds into something that I will mention at the end of this report, and that's the leapfrog scores for Highland and for San Leandro. Um, there were five uh, HAPIs, or hospital-acquired pressure ulcers, in September. Um, and then lastly, behavioral events where there were three, and that's basically workplace violence assaults that resulted in injury to an employee. Um, the other metrics have to do with um, something near and dear to my heart, that's throughput times in the emergency department. Uh, San Leandro does very well with this, although they're still above their goal. Highland League continued to struggle. Yesterday, just as a snapshot, we had 105 patients on board at one point with 25, 28 orders. So this is something that there are a lot of efforts today. There's a pilot going on in the lobby to um, rapidly identify and screen patients 
Um, and the difference is that in 24 hours, there's eight people in the waiting room right now. Part of that is fewer people came to be seen as a result of yesterday. Um, but also, I think this is a very um, expansive effort that shows that we can make a difference in how we get to these patients. Um, the other metrics on here, lastly, patient-centeredness. Uh, so these are, these are our Prescani scores and how we're being recommended. Again, these feed into performance metrics and our true north metrics. Um, and here we are still not where we want to be, but I think we are moving the needle in the right direction. Um, other highlights of this report. The harms, we decided to go and lower the threshold for what we um, what our target is for acceptable harms um, from 3% to 2.5%. And we're close to that. We're at 2.7% for this fiscal year so far. So um, actually doing okay there, but always room for improvement. Um, and lastly, I just want to, we didn't get to actually meet last week to give this, or last month to give this report. Uh, but what I reported out to the MEC in September was around uh, leapfrog scores and our star rating with CMS. So these campuses, Highland and San Leandro, are one star rated for CMS. When I informed the medical staff of that, no doctor likes to be told they're one out of five stars on anything. Um, there was a lot of really spirited discussion around that. And I'm hearing from Ana Torres, it's actually spurred a lot more engagement with the staff, and that is our goal. Um, similarly, for our leapfrog rating, we are a C. Um, no doctor ever wants to be told that they get a C. That entire room, I think we can count the number of Cs on report cards on one hand. So again, I think this is really kind of motivated, hopefully, the staff to be more engaged in this, because all of those metrics I just described there are things that are very much under our control. So um, hopefully, uh, I'll have better news to report to you in coming sessions. Thanks, everybody. Thanks, Dr. Will. Are there any questions? Any questions? Yeah. Go for it. Only four and a half minutes. Okay. Uh, there was a question, but I, I think it was, I think I wanted to say, so this is all excellent. Thank you for the report out. Yeah. The one-star rating yeah. makes me think about the CEO discussion we had over the last few weeks about rolling out our new equity initiative, the dive initiative and how a lot of questions came from our staff about feedback. And I wonder how often or what is the process that our doctors hear about these ratings? Yeah, I, it's, um, thank you for that question. And it's a, it, this actually came up in the MEC where, um, you know, I had a conversation with one of our OBGYNs after, um, and it was around the rates of um, surgical soft tissue infections. She's like, I'm a surgeon and I don't know this. How do I not know this? And so part of the discussion was, um, I am a conduit of all this information coming from this three-hour marathon meeting to take it back to MEC, then how do we actually disseminate the information? Because right now, it only goes up. It ends up with you all here. Um, but we want it to end up with the frontline providers, the people who are actually touching the patients. So um, Anna and I were just talking about this literally when we were out in the hallway about how to do this and creating a synopsis of all this. I mean, this, this is the summary, and it's like eight pages long. Um, so how to get that information that is usable um, back to frontline providers and then actually getting that these individual, um, you know, if you have a fallout for a potty, for a clabsy, we're starting to see these cases actually come back to us. Um, we do this in sepsis already, but starting to see this like today, I just got them for potties for the catheter associated UTIs. So getting back to that so we can give that feedback to individual providers um, so that we can move this because the distance to close, to actually go from one star to being higher, you know, Alameda Hospital, I think is four stars, to actually get there, it's it's not that far. Um, and these are things that, again, are very much under our control, much more so than I think 
um, we know, but but again, we have to have the knowledge. We have to equip the frontline providers with that knowledge. Yeah. So. It, it definitely brings up education in my mind. Yeah. And whether or not we have the, we talked over time, but haven't had actually a report out in a few months about our nurse educators and where they fall in the staffing structure. Do we have enough? Have we lost the people we got? How's that looking site by site? Because that feels like a great place to sit the dissemination of this information. Yeah. Absolutely. I think um, also, and um, the people in this room, we all know it, we'll never give up an opportunity to talk about throughput and in uh, health system overload and the ED crowding that results from that. You know, what we are identifying in these is, is we're seeing inpatient complications happening in the emergency department because of, of, of the length of stay. And so part of that, there's only so much inpatient care that we can affect in the setting of an emergency department. So you know, all of these things are very interconnected. I think that's the other thing this, this um, committee is talking. Um, so actually getting at that, but also realizing that that fully catheter that we throw in that patient when they arrive, like, does it really need to be there and asking that question um, that for many of us is, is very reflexive medical practice. Like 20 years ago, you would never ask that question. Now the truth is that very few people truly need a, a fully catheter and dwelling catheter. Thank you. I mean, these are such good insights, too, and I think um, all, all of, um, from the throughput issues, from the, you know, ambulatory so that less people are using IPD for primary care and, you know, how are you using that and for, for you all to be resourced so that you're practicing at the top of your license and, um, you know, have, having um, the supports of the, you know, the social workers and the others who can do some of the other. I remember thinking at one time when we had like 17 different passwords and to 17 different EHR systems that once Epic comes in, everything will go like, but that that's not how it happens. It, it still um, works uh, on so many levels and the uh, comorbidities and the accuracy of our patients are so uh, intense. Um, so, yeah, and the patient-centeredness to the, I think one of the things that would love to kind of be woven into and at the board level, we've asked many times that only 10% of our own staff get their families over here. So besides the external star rating that we get that surprise us sometimes, how could we be one star or something? What would it take for us to bring our own parent or uh, child or spouse? do this space. So my dad has been cared for in room 44. I have now at this point had the honor of caring for all three of my neighbors um, in the ED as, as patients. So um, I absolutely, um, yeah, uh, agree with you there. Um, you know, we want to give the care that we would um, hope for ourselves and our own family families. Um, the other thing I should add about the data is that increasingly this data is being stratified out, like on here, the readmit data. Um, for African-American patients is stratified out. That's all above target. This is a discrepancy um, and a disparity that exists uh, even with our own internal departmental data with left without being seen. Mm -hmm. um, we see that that is disproportionately happening with our, our African-American patients. So um, that equity work is being very much woven into this um, as well. Thank you so much, Dr. Wilson. I believe Dr. Rusoha had done some analytics about that too, right? So, well, yeah, he's, 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 my, he's my, he's my go-to analyst. Thank you. Thanks for all. Thank you. Such dedicated work. Thank you. Chiefs, back to you. 
Thank you. Thank you for the board um, for um, allowing us to have guests and Dr. Will's amazing presentation. Um, and I don't want to deter more from this conversation, um, but just to update the board in terms of patient and staff experience, I want to announce that we did start our OBGYN obstetrics midwifery gynecology um, as you asked about Chair Banerjee last, last month, uh, we did start our chair search committee um, and it's officially launched. We also have ongoing chair search committees for imaging and radiology and psychiatry. Um, and in terms of sustainability, both the Alameda Hospital and the AHS Department of Medicine presented as well as our orthopedic surgery department presented. Um, they ranged, they talked about very important ongoing projects in their departments. Um, as well as uh, some of their uh, future wishes um, ongoing. And so you will hear future uh, next month from both the orthopedic and the internal medicine chair about their ongoing um, reports. So thank you. And I'll take any further questions. Trustees. Congratulations on the culture of safety awards. Tia wanted to really great to hear about that. And so I just, uh, please convey our gratitude to the team as well. We will. Um, and I'd really very much like to encourage more physicians to attend the conference and, and be aware of these. Um, you know, I, jo I joined our quality team, which was, you know, had a lot of fun with them, but I'm going to try to get more physicians involved um, in these initiatives as well. Mr. Frasky. Um, and maybe this is a question, Anna, for you, but. Our star one rating represents Highland, San Leandro, and John George. They're all on the core license. It's uh, just Highland and San Leandro. Okay. Acute general hospitals. Is yes. there yes. a way to disaggregate San Leandro manually if, if they won't do it? Can we do it and get a better understanding of what both really are in terms yes. of their star ratings? Yes, we can do that. And that has done some of that analysis. And it's pretty much um, the Highland HAIs that are driving our one star. And then, well, next on the, the reason I'm asking is that San Leandro's True North Metric scorecard is very Alameda. similar to Alameda. Right. <clears throat> yeah, so we do have the data. And It'd be interesting to do that. To fractionate it out by hospital, even though they're the same license. Yeah. And, and, and on this discussion, I think for the med staff, this is a great opportunity to sort of normalize an understanding of what these metrics are. You know, people like to play to the test. Uh, and I think many people, I, I think it would be challenging for our rank and file docs to be able to name our 11 True North metrics, the 36 items of which uh, come together to form the leapfrog, the 56 items which come together to form uh, the CMS score. But if, if, if that was normalized and you knew what those 56 items were, I think it would sort of give some degree of empowerment for the docs because they want to play to the test. No one wants a C or a one star. Um, with that, thank you, Chiefs of Staff. Uh, again, welcome, Dr. McGonum. Uh, welcome to the QPSC. Thank you for the second welcome. I appreciate it. Yeah, and this is your venue to tell us whatever you need to tell us or want to tell us. I don't have anything to share at this moment. Um, you know, I, I'm, you know, would, I'm also interested in hearing 
what the kind of parsed out metrics are for San Leandro Hospital. And and I agree with your statement that, you know, if we made it, uh, you know, more um, widely known what our star ratings are and where our issues are, I think everyone would pay more attention, pitch in and try to improve. Uh, I, I know you're a, you're new to chairing the San Leandro Hospital Leadership Committee, but have there been areas of concern which have sort of landed in your lap since you've taken on the role? No, we were discussing this at a meeting, kind of an offline meeting with Satira and uh, Mario Harding, um, and we had not found really any you know issues that that are um, you know egregiously out of uh, out of whack. I mean, we review this with Mario at our at our uh, uh, quarterly meeting, and um, and and we have not received any any real glaring um, outliers. But you know, the more we can drill down, and the more we can get things pertinent to San Leandro, the more we can focus our efforts. Okay, thank you, trustees. Any questions for Dr. Magana? I wanted to say welcome, Dr. Magana, and you have, you know, Dr. Idris Absalis uh, has left a legacy that is really amazing, and we have such confidence that you will be. And um, as you transition into this role, uh, please. Uh, reach out for support uh, to, so that you're set up for success as well. You, uh, I know how uh, closely Dr. Joshi and Dr. Afsali worked, and I'm, I know that that partnership will continue too. But uh, again, convey our gratitude to the team because in the True North metrics, when we go facility-wise, it's really great to see how well San Leandro Hospital is doing, so thank you. Um, I, I would just comment that Having worked on the Medicare rating, star rating system long ago in my career, it's been around for 20 years now, I think, or 15 years. The fact that the people who are the primary determinant of the performance of an institution, I'm hearing now they're not familiar with that and they don't know what they are, it's a little troubling to me. And it's something we definitely need to work on because that's where our bread is buttered. Yeah. We talk about why people might not want to go to an institution. You know, when I was at Medicare, all we told people was like, look up these compare things and pick the right health plan and pick the right. And I had a lot of problems with, you know, I'm not crazy about gold stars. I'm a dentist guy, but they're out there and people know them. And the only way we're going to improve them is to really uh, push that through and, and align our own internal quality efforts with those metrics so that it translates. So we're not working on eight different things. Yeah. So, so there's potentially a PR campaign uh, potentially coming out of the quality division, which could maybe help us bend, bend the curve a little bit. Um, uh, Chiefs of Staff, thank you very much. With that, we'll close item C. We'll go into item D, which are quality reports. First, we'll hear item D1, regulatory affairs, patient safety, and the TNM dashboard from Ms. Torres, our VP quality, and her team. And then we'll hear item D2, post-acute from uh, Mr. Espinoza. Uh, Ms. Torres, good evening. Good evening. So I'll start with the regulatory affairs report. I'll talk about August and September since we didn't report out last month. We had a total of um, four site visits for August and September. Three of those were CDPH. Um, of the three CDPH, two were unsubstantiated, so we're still waiting on uh, CDPH's response to one of the site visits. The uh, 
The fourth site visit was a CMS site visit, and it was um, in regards to an Impala. It was our Impala resurvey. Um, again, we're still waiting for the results from CMS, uh, which tend to take some time. Um, for self-reported events, we had six events that were reported for August and September. Five went to CDPH, and out of those five, uh, one went to Joint Commission. So one case was reported to both CDPH and Joint Commission. Um, okay, so that's the, the regulatory affairs. I'll move into patient safety, and I'll keep it brief for patient safety because we do have Darshan. Okay. Do we have a marquee presentation on patient safety. Yeah, so she's going <laughs> to cover the fiscal year. So I will just say that for July and August, um, we had all of our harms were in the E category again, which is if we're going to have harms, that's where we want to keep them. There were 22 harms for July and August, all E. Um, right now, our year-to-date harm rate, as Dr. Will said, is 2.7, and we did lower that uh, target from 3.0 to 2.5% um, because we hit the target last year, as you'll hear when she reports. Uh, any questions on that? Okay, if not, we will move into the true rod metrics and uh, Annette will present that. Good evening, Ms. Johnson. Good evening. Dr. Wills did a great uh, sort of preview of the True North Metrics info report. So uh, we'll try to keep it brief. Is it possible to pull the dashboard up for our view? Yes, I'm doing that right now. Excellent, thank you. All right, so this is our North metric dashboard. Um, you can see that we still continue to monitor our metrics by the IHI uh, standards, safety, timeliness, effectiveness, efficiency, um, equity, and patient experience to make sure we have a balanced scorecard. We have our metrics here. One of the things that we added new this year is not only are we looking at our overall, but we're also looking at some of our service lines where appropriate for these metrics. And we have added, <clears throat> we continue to monitor both our current month performance and our fiscal year to date. And then uh, new this fiscal year and our attempt to sort of bring equity, diversity, inclusion to our dashboards is we are sort of highlighting the, the racial group that has the biggest opportunity for improvements or has the greatest sort of delta from um, our overall performance uh, here so that we can sort of highlight those and make sure that we're, that we're taking a look at them and addressing uh, any uh, disparities that are occurring. So when we take a look at our patient harms per month, we did make a few changes to our harm composite. So uh, for example, last year we tracked all falls. This year we're focused on falls with injury at the board level. We will track all falls um, at the uh, site level, but at the board level we're looking for falls with injury. And we did add a new harm to our index, which was uh, behavior events that result in physical injury. And that was in response to sort of an industry-wide trend. Post-COVID, we're seeing sort of an increase in aggression or aggressive behavior um, in the healthcare setting. So we want to make, and we were seeing a similar, uh, we were we were said we were following along with that trend. So we wanted to make sure that we were monitoring it and helping to bring it back down and addressing <clears throat> issues as they arise. So that's why we added that to our dashboard. When we take a look at our harms, um, the majority of our events are uh, either hospital-acquired 
um, infections such as Claudia and Clapsy or our sort of new group, which is our behavior events that result in physical injury, which is not surprising as it's our new, our brand new harm that we're beginning to work on. There's a reason we picked it for our index. And so of course it's gonna be high as we until we begin to really intervene and bring it down. Next, can I ask a question? Mm-hmm. Um, the behavioral harm is to patients and employees? To patient and employees, yes. Miss mm-hmm. <clears throat> Johnson, there's no target goal for ambulatory? It's hard when they have one event. And I think it's more because this is an area that uh, some of the harms we have chosen aren't uh, as ambulatory sensitive. We, we have some opportunity to maybe look for ambulatory sensitive harms uh, and also maybe promote the use of our Midas safety alert system with this target audience a bit more. So it's hard to set a goal when we- Not when, zero. Yeah. <laughs> well, I wanna promote, the, I wanna try and get them at this point to maybe report a bit more so we can really make sure that it is that low or uh, you know, I wanna give them some space in case it is that we're not getting the reports in. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> so that'll be green all year, right? With no target. I can I can take out the color coding, okay. so that it's not confusing. Mm-hmm. How about we get a target that's right? yes. relevant? Yeah. Yeah. Let's up going for green and having no target. Let, let Let's give it to Dr. Mack and Mr. Fitzgerald Shaw and to help guide the selection of a number. Okay. And, and and perhaps they can propose that to the trustees so we can have a target. Okay. <clears throat> then we're taking a look at our hand hygiene compliance, which is off to a roaring start. So our, last year, our baseline was 82.5%. Our target is 95% because that uh, is sort of an industry target that we're looking at. And we're already at uh, 92% for August and for the fiscal year to date at 93. So this is a, a great start. And you can see we have pretty high compliance with our acute setting and our post-acute setting, we are this year gonna roll out hand hygiene auditing to our ambulatory setting. So this, they'll be new. We just need to get them up and running um, and using the audits and syntax. Uh, so we can measure hand hygiene compliance in this uh, care area as well. We are also in addition working on a campaign that will uh, uh, promote to patients and family members the right to request uh, staff members to wash their hands. So that's another way that we'll hopefully be continuing to drive pro, uh, compliance to hand hygiene. Good question. If yes. someone submits a request for a staff member to wash their hands, will that be somehow captured? I think it's more of like a sort of a personal interaction. We wanna tell them that they have the right to ask the, the staff member to wash their hands. And, and we were going to work with the staff to then, of course, wash their hands or to, you know, say, I, so I don't think there's a formal way to capture that. But um, we can also maybe include in there that they can submit a, um, uh, uh, they, we have a couple ways that they can submit feedback to us via the, our internet page, or they can reach out and submit a patient uh, uh, complaint or group. Uh, complement via our Midas safety alert system. So there's some ways we could do that if there's interest. If I may, sir. Um, just um, trustee esteem, you're, you're a frontline caregiver, you, you do this. And so I just, I would welcome your, your feedback on what we're proposing here. Do you, does this resonate with you? Does it feel like something that can work or? 
I think that anytime we communicate with our patients and clients and we ask them to share feedback in the moment directly, it's a good thing because we want to know. You know, everything we're doing is about the interaction. And I think it, asking someone to wash their hands is often, it can, it can be harsh to hear that. If you're in sure. food service, if you're in patient yeah. care, what do you mean you need me to wash my hands? You know, I'm clean or whatever. There's all the things. And that's a bold step for a patient to take. It's an advocacy step. And it might be complicated for the patient to do so. You know, I know that sometimes it's like if the patient reports it, they may report it, but then not actually say it. And I think it's also an intervention. And it's a, it's a way for us to continue building trust. And I think building trust has to be the goal that undergirds everything we do with our patients. Because if a patient feels comfortable enough to say, please wash your hands, that means somebody must have engaged them around, as, as we heard. We want people to know it's okay to say, wash your hands. So then how do we actually measure the effectiveness of this intervention? I appreciate you saying that. I kind of anticipated that would be a response, and so thank you for that. And I would, I would just offer that I would hope, and we probably should try to build this in. Our staff's response should be thank you. They, they really should thank and empower the patients when they have the the courage to, to say something like that. So I, I hope that we can, you know, try to weave something like that in to really endorse when patients do that. Thank you for that talk. Um, Ms. Johnson, can you remind the trustees how this data point is actually gathered? Oh, sorry. Oh, actually, uh, so after hand washing, actually, I was just going to ask uh, Annette, as we're walking through things, because I think an important item also for the board to know is how we arrived at the goals we set, yeah. you know, that which were quite aspirational on purpose. So maybe, Annette, as you're walking through, you can add that. But I'm sorry, yeah. back to your question. No, no, uh, Ms. Johnson, if you'll tell us two, two things. One, how we arrived at 95%, which is probably yeah. A, yeah. a preview, which is a standard industry. And then how we actually gather that data point. How do we know yeah. that 92%? Is someone just sitting there watching every hand washing? Can you just inform the trustees a little bit? So 95% hand washing is sort of the industry aspirational goal. So if that's what the industry is aiming for, that's what we should be aiming for. When we talk about hand hygiene auditing, we do it with, um, we have sort of unit-based auditing. So they're auditing each other. Uh, you, and what they do is they look, we have sort of a module that's online that sort of uh, advises them to look at patients or staff going in and out of rooms and are they doing the hand hygiene upon entry and upon exit. And in addition to unit staff auditing other unit staff, the other half of our sample is done with secret shoppers. So we have sort of a mix of uh, frontline perspective directly on the experiences that they're having with hand hygiene and then also sort of an outside uh, secret shoppers. So it can be volunteers that are doing the auditing, or it could be uh, EVS, engineering, uh, food and nutrition, OTPT speech, or helping to collect and gather these audits. So we have this sort of balanced perspective. Um, does that answer your question, Doctor? Yes, sir. I mean, yes, ma'am. Uh, so my, uh, you know, this has been an intractable uh, item for us for as long as I've been on the board. Um, however, I've never seen our head above 90%. So that, that is optimistic. Why do you think we're above 90% right now? We've had numbers as low as 72%, 74%. Why are we 92% right now? I think a lot of this is because we're doing, there's a lot of awareness of hand washing 
in compliance, particularly post-pandemic. Secondly, it is sort of because they're doing the auditing themselves, it's bringing awareness to them. And it might be a tiny bit inflated because we do have some self-auditing in there. Um, but that's why we're trying to balance it with our secret shoppers. So this number may fluctuate as we get more and more secret shoppers in the mix. Yeah. Um, and I think there's been a lot of focus on uh, uh, hand hygiene in our more meetings when we talk about it with uh, uh, in our more operational committee meetings as well. So th I think there's just been a, a focused, a, a real focus on hand hygiene that we haven't seen in a couple of years. So I think that's also a driver. Mr. Frasky. I was going to just reiterate what her last statement. I mean, in the mores, it's really unacceptable to not do your hand hygiene audits. It's probably the easiest audit there is to do. And everybody can participate and get the numbers where they need to be. And so it's really coming down to accountability. Agreed. All right, keep going, Ms. Thompson, please. All right, so then we're going to take a look at our days between appointment requests for both uh, primary and specialty. We're looking at primary here, we set our goal at 10 days, and this is due to uh, the county has timeliness standards that they hold um, sort of insurance plans and providers uh, to. So they wanna make sure that you can get an appointment within 10 days of a request. So um, that's we if that's what our um, partners are being held to, that we, we wanna be held to that as well. So you can see that we were just above it in August, but for year to date, we're right on track for um, overall. And then you can see that adults is just a little bit high in August, but still for the year on track. And pediatrics has is on has been green throughout the fiscal year, and of course, therefore on track for the year to date. So, I know there's been a lot of work to uh, clean up and uh, be really efficient with the management of appointment requests and referrals um, in the refer in our referral unit. So I think that's a lot to do with driving these numbers uh, moving forward. And if we take a look at specialty, the the goal from uh, the county is 15 days, and you can see that we're sitting at around nine to 10 days. So we're, we're right on track. We're actually doing a little bit better right now. Um, These are two really big uh, successes. Mm -hmm. I mean, the appointments were the ones that were- That was an access. intractable day to yes. yeah, mm -hmm. it's it, it, just a testament to the work. Um, so next up, we have our readmissions for, um, so over the last couple of years, we were tracking overall readmissions and we actually were able to successfully bring our overall readmission rate down to 10, to 10, 10.7%. But when we took a look, um, at our readmission rate and disaggregated it, we saw that our African-American, our at black or African-American population, while also decreasing, still had a pretty big delta between it and the overall. So for this reason, we're really focused this year on bringing down readmissions for our black or African-American population. We seem to have sort of an uptick in readmissions in at the beginning of this fiscal year. So I'm working with Dr. Borneo and um, the readmissions as well as the care utilization Care, care management and utilization teams to really start to understand what is what is driving this uptick and what can we do to sort of turn it around. So um, more to come as we get, we start to deep dive into this. I also um, had my quality performance improvement manager, Nina Solman has been, will be 
uh, help, has been hired to and will be focused on readmissions to help drive that and keep the team on track. Um, when we're talking about the next one up, and we, we sorry, I forgot to tell you the goal. The goal here is obviously to bring our Black or African-American patients down to our uh, sort of system-wide readmission rate. <clears throat> when we take a look at our patients' um, up-to-date preventative healthcare screenings, this is a composite measure that looks at uh, cancer screenings such as breast, colon. It also looks at tobacco screening, depression, and flu. And these are all sort of uh, metrics to that keep, we wanna do early screening so we can do early disease recognition and keep our patients healthy. We set our target based off of what we would need to meet our QUIP goal for this year. And unfortunately this metric seems to be trending downward and we need to take a look at it. I think that um, uh, we have a, we need to take a look because it's been trending. It was started trending downwards towards the second half of the fiscal year and it's continuing to make sort of a decline. I need to make sure that we've accounted for the changeover in flu season and make sure that that's not falsely driving this number down. So I have some slicing and dicing and some work to do with Jamie to make sure we really understand what's driving this performance. And then, well, one question. Of course, of course. So within, the, within those up-to-date preventive screenings, you can disaggregate and say flu is this much and screening is this, and so you can see whether it's at, by race. Uh, you know, this looks like a white population is, uh, is probably lowest over here, but by race, but also by the different health screen, health. Yes. I can stratify. I can tell the rate, the overall rate for the different screenings, <laughs> and I can also tell the. I also have the overall the individual health screenings disaggregated by race as well, so I can look at it from different angles. Is there one that's driving us down more? Is there anything that stood out to you? I, I will have to get back to you on that. I don't. I don't have it at the top of my, my I apologize, I don't have it, but I will get back to you with it. <laughs> so for um, ED boarding time, we are set our goal at four hours. The reason we set for four hours is that per joint commission, any patient that remains four, four or more hours after the decision to admit is made is considered a boarder, right? And we know, um, so in order to keep our ED safe, we definitely want a decision to admit time that is below four hours. And you can see that um, we are seeing a small improvement trend, which is bending us towards. And some of this has to do with some recent activity. You know, that talk of the day pilot really seemed to have an uh, have a pretty decent impact in August. Um, so we're seeing this come down. We're sitting at around six, six hours to six and a half hours. For the system, yeah, Ms. Johnson, just repeating, this is this is an aggregated data amongst the three EDs, correct? Mm -hmm. Okay, so uh, as Mr. Fraski commented, there there's definite disparities between. So that kind of view will come out in future reports for us to see where some some of them are faster, some of them are are not as fast. Mm -hmm. I do actually have it. Uh, I can um, next time I'll bring the table that sort of shows it. Uh, stratified by quartiles for the each individual site so we can see um, what it takes. And I'll bring it um, to the meeting. The, 
All good. Keep, keep, keep going. Sorry. So then our next measures are, uh, we're doing, these are our equity metrics, looking at screening for social determinants of health. Um, we're going to do this on all inpatients. So every inpatient admission before their discharge, we want to screen for food, housing, transportation, safety, or utility, utilities, uh, security. We want to make sure we do this screening on at least 90% of our patients, if not 100% of our patients. Right now, we're working on the infrastructure and EPIC to do this measurement. So I believe that they will that will be there in November and they're gonna do training in November and December. So we should start to see data for this metric beginning in January. Our second metric is looking at how many of our patients are positive for these social determinants of health. And so really we're working right here to this first year to establish what is the need, how many of our patients are positive and to sort of set up a baseline for what is the need uh, amongst our patients, how many of our patients are experiencing uh, social determinants of health. Moving on to patient experience, um, the uh, how well we communicated with our nurses on the inpatient setting is known to be the number one driver for overall satisfaction for our inpatients, which is why we sort of brought it out at the board level. It's off to a really great start. So um, the 50th percentile per uh, CMS is 76.53%. That's the top box. And you can see in August, like we got really close. We had 76.23%. So we were like two thirds of a percent or two, two tenths of a percent away from our target. And so our year to date is sitting at 74.55. So this is a great start to the fiscal year. Um, it We were seeing an improvement trend that is continuing, continuing into this fiscal year. Um, we continue to look at our uh, a composite metric. So each one of our surveys has a um, would you recommend AHS? So whether you're looking at our inpatient survey, our ED survey, our rehab survey, our clinic survey, um, they have this question that asks if they would recommend it. So we put together a composite that looks at those. We're targeting to get to about 80. We want 80% of our patients to recommend us. Um, you can, it's a little bit subtle, but we do have a small and stable sort of improvement trend here. Um, and you can see that in August, we're our, our August and our fiscal year rate is already above our baseline. So we have 75.5% in August and 74.6%. So we're definitely on an improvement trend moving forward. And you can then see, we sort of broken this out for acute, post-acute and ambulatory. So you can take a look at this. I will sort of warn you that our post-acute can be a little bit variable because we're talking about a single unit and uh, with longer lengths of stay. So they have sort of a smaller sample size. Any questions? Ms. Johnson, can you uh, help illuminate the board on how this data is actually gathered? Like, like what are the mechanics of it? Does the, are they handed a survey right when they're being discharged? Does it come to them electronically by mail? Press Ganey's executing this, we're doing this internally. Can you give us a little bit of those details? So um, we do have a vendor for uh, Press Ganey and um, the survey is administered in a couple of different ways. So for example, our inpatients are all surveyed via phone. So after they are discharged home, <laughs> you will receive a phone call from Press Ganey. A live person will be on the phone and ask them to conduct a survey with them. Um, for our ED and our ambulatory surgery and uh, and our outpatient clinics, we have what's called a mixed mode. So they will 
uh, reach out and gather uh, surveys via mail and as well as email and text so that we can gather more of a sample um, for at a more cost efficient price, right? So we do have those for our other service lines. And then um, John George is the only survey where we handed out at the point of discharge. And that is for the privacy of our patients. Um, we we don't tell people who, anyone who's been in our uh, facilities, so. Do we, do we know if the time lag between the patient contact and the and the actual survey is it? Is it plus one day, plus one week? So what I've done to minimize the time lag is I've made, we've worked over the years to make sure that we're, as soon as a patient is discharged, that the record goes to, to press scanning to be surveyed. So some of our patients can be surveyed as quick as a two-day turnaround from discharge. Um, for our phone-based surveys, they will attempt to reach out to the patient up to 45 days past discharge. So the way it works is if you're discharged and you're selected for survey, they will contact you at least five times before they give up on you. Um, and they will contact you on, they have to contact you five times on five different days of the week and at five different times so that we have a chance of actually capturing you. Um, and then for uh, our mail surveys, again, they will send it out five, time, five times. And again, those surveys can go out as quick as two days uh, after discharge, but then you have to sort of account for mail mailing time. So it might take about a week to get the survey to the patient. And Press has always been our vendor on this. We've never done this in-house on our own. I know I've never done it in-house on our own. And, you know, there's a lot of rules and regulations about this coming from CMS because patient experience serving is mandatory in, in our inpatient units and is mandatory for ambulatory surgery and will ultimately become mandatory across all of our service lines. Um, so we tend to have a vendor because they are, they will be compliant with sampling and, um, response rates and record completion and all of that kind of stuff that can be kind of complex. So that's why it behooves us to have a vendor. Got it. I, I say this out of a story. A few months ago, I got my oil changed and the guy was really, really nice to me. And he goes, well, you fill out the survey. Five star makes us really, really look good. I clicked five stars on him right there. And I'm just wondering about. You know, again, uh, uh, this is again, uh, this patient experience is important, but understanding the, how the game is played is also really important too. I will tell you that CMS is aware of such strategies and has very explicitly outlined that you are not allowed to do that. Got it. And then I, I wanted to say, I mean, it's just such a thrill to see the disaggregation Rana is part of the indigenous issue group and we were in a meeting today and uh, Dr. Swift was talking about, she had spoken with the CMO of Native American Health Centers a few months ago and his first thing is like, access is really hard for our patients, access is really hard. And now to see that we are measuring, it's the first like in these few months we are seeing, it's been so invisible to us, but now if you can measure, you can improve and so, when we have our peers from the community telling us that our native patients sometimes have, you know, barriers, and to see this is just a testament again to you, know, Dr. Tonabene, for like leading the vision for this and for everybody doing the work to stratify it. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for that report, Ms. Johnson. <clears throat> as far as anything else on. 
Uh, for that, we'll close out item D1. Uh, item D2 is post-acute, and we always welcome Mr. Espinosa uh, to give a report on that. Uh, trustees, this is in your packet as well. Good evening, trustees. Can you hear me? Yes, great. Thank Perfect. you. Great, I will move uh, quickly through this. Thank you for having me. Um, I'm starting to lose my voice, so I will go quick. Um, so CMS five-star quality uh, ratings uh, continue uh, at five stars. And um, I appreciate the conversation we had earlier because our Alameda SNFs are very similar to Highland and San Leandro where our subacute Park Bridge and South Shore are all on one license as well. And so they're all surveyed together and all the data is combined together. So in order for them to be five stars, they all have to be equally running um, at that higher level. So I had a real appreciation for that for the Highland San Leandro conversation. For Fairmont, they too also meet all of the 36 metrics that are monitored in the um, five-star metric. <clears throat> we had three self-reports uh, last month. Uh, we haven't had any visits yet on those. Um, but the exciting news for us was that we had uh, HKI, who is the old OSHPOD, um, which looks at the building compliance. And we had the South Shore move over a year, about a year ago, um, or almost a year ago, to Fairmont H2. So the work has been completed, and HKI came on 929 to see if the facility passed, and they did. Then we scheduled a visit for 1018 for CDPH to come and clear the facility so that the residents can move back to South Shore. And they met all of the SNF requirements and life safety requirements, all of the quality measures um, and um, the uh, testing for the building met compliance. So last Wednesday we passed uh, and we moved all the South Shore residents left Fairmont H2 and came back home on Sunday, which was the 22nd, uh, just a few days ago. Uh, so we removed the bed suspense from CDPH. Um, we passed the two surveys. And just to give a high level overview, uh, it was 23 residents that moved. It required our billing team to discharge all of our residents from Fairmont H2 and admit them to South Shore get all new authorizations for those patients since they're starting a new admission, start all over the billing practices for those patients and starting those accounts again, all new admission packets. Our physician, Dr. Ye, who's part of the AIM group, um, was also available who was discharging the residents from Fairmont and admitting them into South Shore while our nurses were uh, validating orders and then putting the orders into Epic. We had the level of detail for the level of transportation for each resident, whether it was gurney or if they could be in a companion ride or a wheelchair gurney or by ambulance. Um, we had resident and family involvement. Um, all physician orders, rehab orders were reviewed. All assessments were redone. Our PASSAR, which is our pre-admission um, screening for residents, all had to be uh, redone. Uh, working with DHCS. And then we had two teams, one at Fairmont and one at South Shore. And we had a command center where they were talking to each other, saying, you know, Mrs. Jones is just picked up. She should be there in 15 minutes. And the team at South Shore was preparing the room and getting ready to greet um, the residents as they arrived. 
Um, and then all of the nursing and psychosocial aspects were addressed. And we monitored all of the residents for 72 hours after admission, just to make sure they were acclimating well um, to the building. Um, it went incredibly well. Here is some photos if you haven't been to South Shore. Um, new flooring, um, because they had to tear up all of the floors for the pipes. Uh, so there's new flooring, paint, um, working pipes, most importantly. Um, and, um, you know, the residents were very thrilled to come back home. And so in terms of a quality of life, um, the residents, uh, we have some great photos that we just want to make sure we have releases for, but um, of them entering and being greeted and smiling. Um, it was just really a phenomenal event. With this move, um, South Shore will go back onto the Alameda license and the three buildings again will be considered one unit um, and will be surveyed again as one unit probably in the next year. So we have a little time. Uh, in our acute rehab, we also had a survey on the 28th and 29th, um, which is called our CARF survey. Um, the acute rehab is CARF accredited. The highest accreditation you can get is a three-year accreditation and our acute rehab has achieved that twice uh, once in 2017, once in 2020. And preliminary findings are suggesting that we will receive another three-year accreditation. Um, and so uh, there's a small brief description on what CARF is, why it's important. It's an international accreditation. Um, and again, it would be the third time that our unit will have achieved the three-year accreditation if it comes through. Um, and I, I think Mark Fratsky has an affinity for this as he used to be a CARF surveyor. So <laughs> he knows uh, what goes into this. And during the exit conference, they reminded us that there were over 2,200 standards that they looked at, 1,700 for rehab program that we were certified in, and then 5,000 for the stroke um, program that we also applied for. So we should get the final notice within about three to four weeks um, from now. Um, but all indications are, are pointing to another three-year accreditation. Um, I wanted to share some of our rehab volumes um, since this is something that we also look at. Um, I wanted to just kind of highlight some of the greens where we're exceeding the amount of patients and treatments for our residents. And so really the rehab teams have been focusing on three points. <laughs> Um, and so our acute rehab census was down, so they weren't able to see as many patients or have as many treatments, so that's why they're in the red. And we had a OT who was out on an LOA, and we were trying to backfill with um, some SAMs. But for the majority between Highland, Alameda, Fairmont, outpatient rehab volumes, um, they are doing a remarkable job. And so wanted to be able to share some of their success as well. And that's really all I had for uh, post-acute. And so I'm open for any questions. Thank you, Mr. Espinosa, as always. Trustees? Sir, just a comment. Um, <clears throat> when I was the CAO for post-acute, excuse me, yeah, for the rehab facility, um, car for accreditation was a dream. That was something we've had a rehab facility for many years and we had never achieved car for accreditation. I think most of you know that um, um, an IRF, that is a process. People don't just come here because you know they're in your hospital and they come, they choose. And so they literally shop these facilities. And so 
one, there's not that many of them around. There's one down on Pill Hill, and then Kaiser has one up in Vallejo, and then you have to go down to San Jose. But we, um, we fight for that business. And so that Richard and his team have now, you know, they've gotten carp, and it looks promising that they're going to have it again. It really changes the game in terms of our ability to attract people to come and choose us for their care. And so I just, I can't say enough how proud I am of the work that Richard and the team have done, continue to do. And um, I just wanted to reflect that to the trustees. Thank you, sir. I, I second that. I mean, a global accreditation is on a different level than it's an international accreditation. So kudos, but also so struck by the move um, and the processes that went through into making the residents from moving South Shore. And again, it's, uh, how patient-centered it was is like, you know, uh, is so evident in the way in the way in which your team uh, and to monitor them for 72 hours and all of that to make sure that the transition is smooth. It's not just you're here and that's it. It's like, then how are you? So again, testament <coughs> to that end-to-end -end, uh, quality. Great. Trustees? Yeah, I just want to second all of that. The facilities look beautiful. The accreditation is amazing. You know, I, I think our postal feed service is a consistent high performer, and we've had a lot of recognition in the last few weeks, which is amazing. Um, so, you know, the team, the leadership, everybody's working really well together, and that's, I think, a model for us all to follow. Uh, and I, I was struck by what you said, James, about people shopping for the service and how that also is a benefit to our bottom line. And any service that has revenue is always a huge benefit. Thank you. All right, trustees. Thank you, Mr. Espinoza. Thanks, Ms. Torres. So we'll close out item D and I'll welcome Ms. Torres right back. Um, uh, so we're gonna hear about the quality retreat update. Uh, is this led by you, Dr. Mm -hmm. Torna? My apologies, Dr. Torna Bene will lead this item, uh, item E. Great. Um, it is uh, me and uh, Annette uh, will come back. Um, so um, I will kick us off. And uh, Annette, are you able to bring up our set? Perfect. So um, I'll just start with uh, recalling um, our quality our, our quality talk at the board level in the spring, which is that we, we spend a lot of time in that um, talking about how quality is a process and the process is the solution. However, one of the things that we wanted to do in, in having a quality retreat where we were really working on the TNM dashboard was to not just talk about quality improvement as a process, but to really talk about it as a mindset, as an outlook and a philosophy. And, and so we kicked it off with that idea, uh, but also with the knowledge. And I'm sorry, Annette, um, you're showing the, the notes, um, if you can just switch the view, that, that um, part of quality improvement as an outlook means accepting the duality of an optimistic posture, like we know that we have a sense of hope and optimism, but it also means accepting that what we're doing right now is not good enough. 
that we need to do better. Um, and so that's how we uh, uh, grounded our quality retreat. And so what we really wanted to do was have a quality retreat and really start to launch a few of them around creating urgency for our TNM metrics. We specifically chose to focus our first, uh, our first quality retreat on um, some um, key areas, especially harm. We really wanted to focus on harm. And then we wanted to use the opportunity um, in this quality retreat to really talk about the next steps around the structural supports uh, for the TNM dashboard. So our goals for the day included uh, obtaining, as you can see here, we really wanted to get a commitment from the folks in the room, leaders and bedside staff around, this is important, this is meaningful, and we need to do this to, to improve um, the care uh, we provide our patients. We wanted to provide a, the roles and responsibilities around the TNM um, and outline that structure, as I said, and really get uh, drum up energy and get involvement from um, bedside staff who would be attending uh, this first quality retreat. And so from there, I'll hand it over to Annette, who can walk um, all of you through what the agenda was in particular and who attended. So Annette, I'll hand it to you. Like Dr. Tornabay said, our goal really was to drive uh, create awareness, urgency, um, with our turnover metrics and to sort of develop ownership and accountability, as well as sort of give people how we had some resources and new tools to help uh, drive performance improvement this year. When we set up our agenda, we really uh, focused on, again, the staging and level setting, explaining why this was important, that it isn't an, an administrative or a check the box, but how this really connects back to the quality and the safety of the care that we provide to our patients. Um, and show examples where we were successful um, both internally and externally in reducing uh, harm or driving up uh, uh, measures. Um, we also um, uh, shared some of the performance improvement resources, such as our new quality performance improvement managers and our sort of dyad structure where we have a QPAM assigned to each True North metric and working with an operational leader as well as a physician to drive those. Um, and then after that, we sort of asked the team to self-reflect and to say, um, what are the barriers that e that prevent them from fully participating in performance improvement or from driving performance improvement and sort of um, deep diving and generating ideas around that. And then after that, we sort of shifted gears to actually deep dive into some harm. So in this particular case, we took a look at our hospital-acquired pressure ulcers, our cauti, our clapses, and our SSIs, and really worked with the team to sort of look at the data, to find their drivers, and see if they could identify some quick wins so that they could get we could get them started on this performance improvement process. When we take a look at our attendees, we had attendees from across the organization, um, from all service lines and all facilities. So we had representatives from Postacute, from John George, we had Alameda, San Leandro, uh, Highland, um, even ambulatory as well. And you can see this is some of the, the process manager. They were seen to see this sort of what is keeping them from participating in and uh, driving performance improvement and making sure that we're sort of identifying them to give them space. So when we took a look at these things, 
we did see several bright spots, right? So one of the things that we're that we were really focused on in the org throughout the retreat is the idea of standardization. So do we have a standard way of doing things so that people aren't reinventing the wheel each time they need to do stuff? And we did see some examples of that with our pre-op checklists. We have created some new standards around CHD bathing, our telesitters, um, also some bright spots with the ability to see data. So we have these really great ambulatory dashboard. We have our new true north metrics. We have our unit specific reports. Um, we have uh, uh, John George has an amazing assault data breakdown that they're taking a look at. Another great bright spot was the synergy, the growing synergy around patient experience, um, the importance of it, and also some really effective interventions. So sort of spreading the learnings around rounding and, and doing text messaging to some of our patients to thank them for their visits, EVS doing surveys on patients to see while they're in-house about the quality of the room and the, and the cleaning. Uh, we also had some bright spots when it comes to performance improvement work. We, we There was a lot of energy and excitement around our dock of the day pilot um, and also the idea that we're looking more and more at stratifying our metrics by uh, equity and disaggregation and providing that sort of insight into equity here. And then um, the engagement of leadership was another bright spot. Our more, our more meetings are seen as a real opportunity to sort of understand what is happening and how to in, and engage in improving uh, results moving forward, as well as there was a lot of excitement about our new triad PI teams. We took a look at barriers. Um, we do, a, there was sort of a lot of consensus that we do a great job of messaging up, particularly about our quality, but maybe we have some opportunity to message down and also to make sure that we're sharing the work and improvement that we're doing across our different service lines and also between like nursing and physicians to make sure that we're really being efficient and bringing those things together. Um, while we started to see, you know, more data, there's obviously, there's there's more hunger and more thirst for that data and a, really a desire to push it down to our frontline providers and our frontline nursing teams. Uh, and then of course, really wanna focus on creating more standardization, more process and more protocols moving forward. So sort of our key takeaways, I will say, is that we are a very mission-driven organization. Everyone in that room is very passionate about taking care of the patients that we see and putting their first and foremost. And they are excited and ready to engage in performance improvement. Um, and that there are a lot of bright spots in sort of small localized areas and best practices. And we sort of have an opportunity to really start to promote them, make them vis visible uh, and sort of make sure that they're being stored, uh, uh, make them more transparent and readily available to all of our staff. Um, and then I think there's a real opportunity for us to continue to engage in uh, plan, do, study, act for our improvements. So like we, when we implement these things, let's do them in iterative, continuous cycles so that we are driving performance improvement and really engaging the staff so that they can see the impact that they can have in, in making these improvements. And then we did identify a large area of resource of staff, like medical residents are not as involved in PI work. Um, at least for, from the quality perspective, I know that they're doing stuff internally and this would be a great team to sort of bring in and help uh, uh, bring in, uh, bring together with, with the quality team. 
Um, so you can see that as a result of our retreat, there has been, we did achieve our urgency and our engagement. I have had tremendous improvement in attendance and engagement at our performance improvement team meetings. We have Dr. Wills is doing a great job of promoting the True North metrics at our Q at our QSC and engaging the team there. The more meetings, we're having great conversations about our Twitter metrics. So there really is an urgency and an acceptance of accountability and uh, attempt to drive this. So we were very successful in that way. And then we are also starting to sort of work at a secondary level to see how can we get that information out and then sort of incorporate it into existing operational structures because no one needs more meetings, right? So how can we incorporate into the nursing and provider uh, meeting meeting and government structure. So that's sort of the next thing we're trying to engage in. <clears throat> so uh, from this, we continue to form our triads for particularly around our hospital acquired infections. We're, um, we're, we are working, we're working on and have established um, ED readmissions team is up and running. We have our ED throughput team is up and is working. We do have a team that's working on implementing social determinants of health at this point in time and then we are doing um, some additional work for hand hygiene we have uh, some reminder calls going out to unit staff um, and as well as our ancillary staff to make sure we're getting those audits done moving forward uh, we are using this as a jumping point uh, the pi team is really looking at okay uh, how can we standardize processes and protocols both for the individual performance improvement, but the things that surround it. Like, do we have a standardized process for testing and trialing a new product? Do we have a standardized process that the staff understands for uh, getting a policy or procedure through? And then really breaking down those silos, working on incorporating equity at all levels of our performance improvement. Again, creating more availability, visibility, that camp PR campaign that we were alluding to, we're really trying to make sure we're getting to all the meetings and talking about the work that we're doing and promoting it. And then we do have um, additional retreats scheduled. So in November, we're gonna pull together our performance improvement teams that are focused on Falls and Happy and, and do a deep dive with them. And then we'll revisit our HAI teams now that they've had some time from our last retreat to see how they're doing and to keep pushing them further um, in this performance improvement. So in order to succeed, we really need to make sure that one of the things we heard loud and clear is we need to protect the time for our leaders and our frontline staff to get, engage in performance improvement. Um, <clears throat> we need to make that we are communicating the priority of our True North metrics and share the progress and results with our frontline staff and, and clinicians. We need uh, one of the things I would like to see us do, but I know it's coming with our PFAC, is incorporate patient voice into our performance improvement um, and then really develop um, and expand educational resources so that as we make these changes, we can promote and um, uh, engage the staff in understanding the performance, the new processes, the new procedures that we're implementing. Any questions? Thank you for that report, Ms. Johnson. Dr. Tornbennett. Fantastic. Thank you. This is, uh, and doing a kind of deep dive retreat, and I just saw the list kind of skim through it. What an amazing multidisciplinary team that comes in there. So just kudos to that. And things that jumped out at me was that when you said you manage up, like in 
the data, but sometimes going down to the front line, I thought that was really important. Um, and then uh, also um, having uh, medical residents be part of the PIQI process is so important, and then cultivating that conditions where people can speak up um, when you see. Uh, in 2016, Dr. Bouquet got us a, a, an article to read called The Challenger thing where it said like sometimes when you see but you're junior you can't say like and that prevents um, and then uh, you know what the, I was reading this AMA article which says that you know some of the um, causes for moral injury or others are when med school doesn't always teach you how to speak up when things are not right like how do we cultivate that condition to say we are doing our best. Like, imagine the kind of people who work here, choose to work here, the dedicated staff that they have. So this ties in, again, um, very closely to the article that didn't make it into our book today, but I would ask everybody to read. It's the 2023 report on physician um, burnout and depression also. And I feel like when we have things like this and when you... It, it, it reduces burnout. I think there's less, uh, you know, there are so many, there's no one magic bullet to reducing it, but the coordination, the cooperation, the sharing of data, the vulnerability to say, yeah, of course, all all places have harm. But so we're coming in with that positive that we are doing all we can and we can do better. So on so many fronts, uh, amazing work. Thank you. Thank you so much. With that, we'll close out item E and we'll go to item F. This is an important report. It's a patient safety annual report uh, given by Ms. Darshan Graywall, who's our system director of patient safety. Ms. Graywall, always great to see you. Um, apologies, you can blame your committee chair. It is 6.30 in the evening right now, and we still have a closed session item. We want to give you due attention here, but if we could do this in about 15, that could be great. Oh, not a problem at all. I can do that. Can you hear me well? Yes, thank you so much. Excellent. Well, thank you so much for this opportunity to share my um, fiscal year report, uh, the patient safety report. And let me project that for you. And is that visible for? Perfect. Oh, wonderful. Thank you. Okay. Well, let me just proceed. Um, what we're first going to do is talk about um, how we're measuring the organizational risk and patient harm, because again, that's the most important thing on all of our minds to, to make sure that we are continuously improving, but we're also improving in the right direction and reducing uh, our patient harm. So just to recap, uh, I had brought this slide a couple of months ago, but I just wanted to, to again um, recap. Uh, we have been actively measuring harm for uh, since I've come on board since fiscal year 18, and um, again we did we have seen a nice downward trend during COVID. It stayed stable with a little blurb in uh, fiscal year 2022, but again now we're on our downward trend, and this year we're hoping to hit 2.5 percent uh, harm. So again, a lot of effort constantly uh, being put on those areas of vulnerability and um, really happy after hearing Annette's report and all the efforts that are aligned with our harm areas like happies and falls and things that we 
seeing system-wide that we just haven't tackled uh, if on a high level, strategic level. So, so that's gonna really help us in the future. Um, and then we uh, harm, we risk stratified that harm to indicate um, some harms uh, are more severe than others even though E through I is the harms that we measure where it touches the patient and we were able to get the patient back to the baseline for E, but H and, H and I harms actually are permanent, permanent harm and disability and our death. So as you can see in fiscal year 18, we had 426 total harms with an acuity scale. E ranked as a score of one, and then I had a score of five. So we had 677 harm points and we brought that down to um, 173 harm points. Now, you'll notice here that 93% of the harm that we had last year was actually an E event. So E meaning it reaches the, oh my goodness, I just, I lost power. I apologize. Is everyone still there? Yeah, we're yeah, still here. Okay, I totally went black. Here, let me just make Ms. sure. Ms. Rana, I'm working on it. Packet page 163. Thank you. Oh, was it on my end or your end? We can still see you. We just lost your presentation. You're right now on the home page yeah. for- okay. uh, let me stop sharing. Okay. I can share Darshan. Oh, Darshan, oh, we can I, share I, for you if that helps. Actually, I changed oh, okay. the slide slightly. Okay, Jurassic so. Park is back online. Okay, <laughs> wonderful. <laughs> um, so, so again, uh, the type of harm that we're having across the organi organization has significantly improved, but it's wonderful that now we have a focused performance improvement team that's working on those historical systemic areas that we can now really, really drill down on. So uh, we, we've seen a significant reduction in the harm acuity over the last five years. Okay, the next slide. Again, I just wanted to, again, emphasize, um, most important is the harm is reduced to our patients. Uh, but Beta also being a very close partner with the patient safety team, has shared data to demonstrate that we're getting less cases, less claims, the, the indemnity costs are going down and the indemnity and defense costs are going down. So again, not only are we benefiting as an organization by reducing uh, harm to our patients, but we are seeing the effects of it in many different aspects. This is a great slide, Ms. Graywall. Thank you. Um, again, want to just reiterate, uh, Dr. Lee has mentioned how beneficial the beta, beta programs are, and I really want to encourage all of the people attending today to, um, you know, make an effort. Uh, I will reach out to you. We have three workshops that are slated for um, uh, 2024, so we would love to have everyone go through um, the experience. It is a wealth of information and support that they provide us to actually, um, you know, give us the energy, the wisdom, the, you know, the evidence-based practices to do this work. Uh, 
and uh, it has been really rewarding for us as an organization. We did achieve all of these um, designations for this uh, fiscal, this past fiscal year, and uh, want to continue on this journey to to improve our outcomes. Um, this is a snapshot of the five-year plan uh, that patient safety is trying to work towards. We are in our fiscal year 2024, where we are going to try to implement the communication and transparency domain. And that we are already doing, and um, it's just a matter of uh, formalizing it and ensuring that we have all the criteria in place. And that's typically right after a harm event, how we have that timely and empathetic communication with our patients, families, um, and of course, engaging the clinicians and the leadership in those conversations to restore the trust back with our, um, our patients and, and, and their loved ones. Um, moving right along to our culture of safety, which is one of my very passionate um, pieces of, of the role that I have here, we are going to be honoring and recognizing again, the uh, culture of safety innovation award this year, because we did make some uh, very impressive improvements in the uh, 15 domains of the culture of safety survey. We were the one and only beta insured uh, healthcare system that actually saw an improvement in all 15 domains. <laughs> and were recognized for that at, uh, at, at one of the conferences. So we want to focus again, our lowest um, scoring areas are teamwork, safety, climate, and burnout. So we've put a lot of emphasis on, on having leaders really focus in on those three key areas, which are fundamental in building a culture of safety. Okay, so this is the first release of this. This is hot off the press. Um, we did some very in-depth data aggregation and, and looked at um, uh, quantifying the improvements of all 15 domains for each setting. There are eight facilities that we actually uh, survey, uh, and these are the eight locations. And these are the groups that had the highest shift in improvement in all of their um, 15 domains. And you know these numbers um, are very, very statistically significant to improve that much in one year. Um, so each of these uh, are representing each of the eight locations. Um, and I did, you know, I know that uh, Richard also brought up. Uh, he had presented today and he got many accolades from, from many of the trustees and other leaders here. So Richard showed a 36% improvement from last year to this year uh, with his leadership team and the culture that he's transforming. Um, and not to, not to minimize all of these other uh, great accomplishments, uh, Dr. Bouquet, uh, you are in the 87th percentile of your physician group. So congratulations um, and congratulations to all of these, all of these great accomplishments. Uh, we took it one step further and we wanted to actually give feedback 
because we want to ensure that people are creating the right action plans. And uh, not only is there improvements demonstrating that, but the action plans are specifically focusing on key areas that are going to drive our culture of safety for the long run. And again, these locations and the, uh, these work settings were all recognized as making significant improvements um, from 2022 to 2023. And we will be uh, presenting all of these uh, winners, a beautiful trophy and going and getting some pictures and really celebrating their success uh, uh, for all this wonderful work. Um, the next area that I really wanna focus on, uh, I wanna focus on the patient rela relations piece of our program first, because it has been the one that has been impacted the greatest this year. In, in ways that, um, you know, maybe maybe we could solicit, solicit some support or uh, conversation from the board. Um, patient relation volume has gone up exponentially. Um, it started happening during COVID, but post COVID, it just keeps going up, up and up. Um, we still have the same number of resources we are still wanting to provide exemplary care, uh, but it, there has just been such an explosion of uh, complaints and mostly grievances, which are a CMS um, regulated function that we must cross our T's, dot our I's, and comply with all the requirements of CMS when an organization does receive a grievance in a timely manner, it has to be executed. So we've seen a 33% increase system-wide. Um, where is that 33% landing? In our general acute care settings, it's about a 23% increase. In our ambulatory settings, it's gone up 75% our grievances. So uh, a huge, huge um, uptick in, in that area of our patient population. If we take that one step further, these are the top three patient relation event types that we're seeing. Quality of care, access, and then staff professionalism. Access is one of our biggest problems. Although as um, the data is showing some positive results of, the, of, of access, but if you look at the overall patient relations increase and the issues that we're seeing, it is probably, no, not probably, statistically, it's access related. Um, going down one step further, um, we look at uh, quality of care, 32% in the acute care, 51% access in the acute care, and then staff professionalism being it's the third category in our patient relation events has remained consistent in all of these graphs. Again, in the clinic setting, you'll see 78% increase in the types of grievances and then 88% for quality of care. So this is really where um, our team is really struggling to keep up with the volume, the types of events that are coming in and trying to restore that trust with the patients and their families um, when they're not getting the type of care and the timeliness of care that they expect 
uh, from our healthcare system. Um, just a little, I'm not gonna go through all of these, but these are the top five reasons that are given by um, patients uh, about the quality of care issues, uh, a lot relating to the communication. And then when we look at access, uh, the top area is the wait time for the next available appointment. And I understand there are a lot of things being done about it, but in the eyes of the patient, um, this is one area that if we as an organization can really try to work together and focus on, I, I think we will see a positive impact in many, many different areas uh, that, that this, this actually impacts. Um, the next section of, of the patient safety program is related to the risk events. And the risk events, we are continuing to show um, more management of our harm events. And this is just a three-year uh, study. And so again, um, as Dr. Wills had mentioned, last year we landed at 2.77%. And again, this year we're going to try to strive a little bit harder and get that down to 2.5%. Um, and, and so far we're doing okay. We're at 2.7 right now. So we're gonna to continue to focus on that. Um, the top five risk events that we're seeing, um, the top one is uh, patient behavior. So we, as you all are very well aware, uh, nationally, we're seeing a lot of activity around patient assaults, patient behavior related. Um, so that is one of our top areas that we're seeing also at AHS. And then the other ones are pretty consistent from year to year. Um, this one is more of the events that we're seeing for this, for this year. Uh, we're also seeing uh, staff, provider, clinical practice related events, but the percentage increase was um, 6%, not as high as patient related events. Um, when we focus more down on the patient behavior events, um, the assaults to a patient visitor and <laughs> whether it be an actual assault or um, a verbal and has actually caused a 24% increase of workplace violence events. So that's also impacting, um, even when we um, meet with our beta partners, our, our, our workers' comp claims are, are probably one of the highest that they've been, um, that they can recall. So they actually had recommended that we look at their workplace violence incentive program uh, that they have to, to see if there are improvement opportunities because they're also seeing a huge influx of claims that are coming in from um, WPV events. Um, and then just really quickly, where are these staff-related uh, events happening? At Alameda, they've seen a uh, pretty significant increase um, in, in these events. San Leandro Hospital, pretty significant. Of course, John George uh, where we often would expect it based on that patient population. So these are the top areas that these events are actually happening. And then um, uh, thank you, uh, Annette, for your very comprehensive report, because I, like I said, I am very grateful that some of the areas that for the last five years that I've been here that I've seen a lot of, a lot of volume, like with falls and happies, mm -hmm. 
things like that, but we haven't as a system done anything sort of proactively about addressing that because that's where now our most of our harms are living, the e-events. And so there's gonna be, I, I hope to see in this upcoming year that there's going to be significant improvement and that will really uh, um, sort of a, a affect our data in patient safety. And access is being one of the measures on the True North metric. Um, I'm also hoping that that will make an impact as far as our, our, our patient behavior events, we do have the workplace violence work group. It's also captured in the True North metrics. And then again, as I had mentioned, there is a beta incentive program that we can also look at to see if there's an opportunity for our organization to adopt that. Okay. Oh, there you are. <laughs> I I I couldn't see anybody, so but that's okay. You, you guys could see me. Um, any questions? Just a comment. Thank you, Ms. Graywall. I know this is hard work, and how dedicated your team is, and uh, that's a great slide set. The data is, you know, as they say, data can be illuminating. The patient relations, uh, the, you know, on the orders of magnitudes of a hundred percent, eighty-eight percent, sixty-five percent, one hundred sixty percent are very concerning. Yeah, um, it's, the, the, it's, is is the patient relations team staffed to no. handle this? Yeah, I already know the answer to that question. So. I, you know, um, I think Dr. Bouquet, what I struggle with, um, there are a lot of great programs that we are in our future. Like, like I mentioned, the communication and transparency, how important that link is and i know that you yourself have been in many many meetings um with jan robertson and myself and how important that restoration of trust and 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 having that very sensitive dialogue with families impacted families so jan robertson and her team um, are very very invested in that and then our organization is very much a proponent of the peer support and care for the caregiver been, has been in conversation for four or five years and that's slated for the subsequent year uh, because we wanna do it sequentially, but uh, Jan and myself will be one of the two champions and there's just not the capacity at the level that they're working to try to manage the mountain of grievances that are coming because of the CMS regulations that hold us to that 30-day turnaround time and the complexity of these events. So uh, honestly speaking, um, and you've always wanted me to be honest, the resources are not there. There, there, is, um, there is a constant tug uh, of, of, of making sure we meet those metrics every month without something falling through the cracks. Uh, you, you, the board is very supportive of, of that, yeah. you know, just doing a little bit of back the math here. We're probably talking that maybe another 300 events are, all, you know, just ballparking. And I, I personally know some of these yeah. events can take 20, 30 hours of investment. Oh, more. Time. Yeah. More. Yeah. Because I think, uh, I think what people don't realize, um, although you see me in the forefront doing RCAs, but each grievance almost takes the intensity of an RCA because yeah. they have 
to speak to the frontline providers. They have to speak to the patients. They do a lot of mitigation. They pull clinicians and, and families together. Each one takes the level of intensity of almost an RCA because they want to make sure that they give back to those patients and families what they are seeking to understand about what may have gone wrong and what are we doing as an organization to address that. So it's it's taken with a lot of passion and um, commitment from the team, but the ability to sustain the level um, that we're trying to deliver uh, and, and, you know, um, it, it, the writing has been on the wall for the last two to three years, and it just keeps going up, 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 up to a point where uh, it's worrisome because, like I said, I want to implement other programs that will make us work us towards high reliability, but something's going to have to to give somewhere um, to be able to. Yeah. Yes, sir. Um, one of the things that's striking me here is the our caregivers and our institution hasn't likely changed all that much over a couple of years, but we know that there is something in the environment that's very different uh, over the last couple of years. And I recall when I first came out here and I worked at CMS, the health plans here were rated much lower than the ones in the East Coast. This is back in the 90s. And it actually turns out that people in California rate things harder than other people. It's actually true, and it's true in lots of surveys. Here, we're in this post-pandemic period, and I can't help but think there's a little bit of a post-pandemic bounce here, that these numbers were lower because there just weren't as many encounters happening. And then now there's a lot of encounters, and we have temporary people working here. We have registry people. There's, you know, there's, there's some flux in the system that could have led to that. It does take a lot of effort to deal with grievances once they happen, but the more important thing is to not happen in the first place. And clearly, like our low star rating for CMS for the Highland license is related to this because CMS weights the satisfaction thing really highly. So, um, you know, staffing the cleanup is important, but, you know, stopping the, the unhappiness and targeting the ones that have the, the biggest hit is probably where I think we need to be going. That's I see Dr. Wu's hand is up. Uh, uh, Madam Clerk, if there are other hands up, will you just let me know? I will, thank you. Good evening, Dr. Wu. Good evening. Yeah, I really appreciate your presentation, Darshan. And I think that one thing that resonates with me is, you know, as you're talking about root cause analysis, you know, getting back to the root cause of all these patient grievances and why the volumes are going up. And I do think a lot of them come from our true death metrics and some of those resource challenges that we have in meeting them. Um, and I think that if we can, you know, continue to right size those resources to make those different initiatives impactful, that hopefully, we, you know, we can have a resultant decrease in the consequential, you know, workload that Darshan and her team have to deal with on the patient relations side. So I think that it's, it's all related. Uh, and I think if we can kind of continue that conversation to make sure that we're reaching the actual root cause of all of the work that Darshan and her team are doing, then we can affect the patient care from there. Thank you, Dr. Wu. Good evening, Dr. Swift. Hi, um, I also really appreciated this um, detailed presentation. I feel compelled to also advocate for understanding the data and the subpopulations a little bit more um, with more detail and perhaps you have that and haven't been able to share it here tonight. I think we all need to move to a more, you know, post pandemic now and regrouping I 
I believe that we need to move towards more intentional, culturally affirming care. We have interpreter services, we have a variety of resources, but we really need to be able to understand at the population level too, what trends we're seeing along demographic lines um, and how we are responding in a culturally concordant way in addition to the standard um, uh, ways in which we address um, grievances and other sort of um, problems, but we need to also look at the subpopulations, what the population needs are, whether it's by zip code, by race, by ethnicity, by language. I'd be interested to see like how many people in these grievances do not speak English as a first language. Um, you know, how are they feeling othered in a variety of ways? Um, and I think we need to begin to incorporate that kind of thinking into all of our problem solving. And I, I think we're on our way, but I just really want to advocate for really having a culturally affirming approach Thank because you we are a very diverse population. Thank you. Thank you, Dr. Swift. I, I appreciate you for saying that, Dr. Swift. You, you beat me to it. <laughs> I was going to ask, you know, after seeing the, the data breakdown from the previous presentation, that Ms. Johnson gave really showing, you know, we're going to highlight the area of most opportunity with by race and ethnicity and, you know, like, where is that for this data? And how do we understand the, the SOGI data of the patient and also the ethnicity and language and for the provider that is also offering care that is leading to, you know, whatever's happening, something's happening in the interactions. And I think all of that is relevant. That is step one. Yeah. Yeah, thank you. Uh, I mean, great presentation and at the aggregate level, just seeing the volume, it's eye-opening. And the stratification is so important and the juxtaposition of, you know, how much improvements we are doing in the culture of safety and doing that, the internal medicine department report. If you haven't seen that in the in your book, read it because there's so much great work happening. And when we break it down and see like where the pain points are, it's not just addressing them, but preventing um, them as well. And also for me, uh, say, because sometimes when we work to the exam like we can have the star we can have a lot of things that are check 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 when once in three years somebody comes to check us and then we still feel on a day-to-day -day basis we know how certain subpopulations within us are doing on a granular level so i think it's combining all the layers of uh, of data that we get the good and the opportunities too but just an excellent meeting today, yes. Chair. Trustees, anything else? I really appreciate the discussion. We'll we'll be asking you back, certainly, of course, to keep hearing from us. With that, we'll close out item E, sorry, item F. Item G is quick, it's action discussion and, and calendar planning. Please note, everyone, that the, that the third, the fourth Wednesday of November is actually the evening before Thanksgiving. I made that mistake last year. We're not doing that this year. We're going to do the fifth Wednesday of, of, of the year. This will be so QPSC will be on Wednesday, 1129, not Wednesday, 1122. Yes, thank you, goodness, for a fifth Wednesday. So, so um, uh, 
this will be this is of import to uh, Ms. Dalton's office in terms of credentialing because everyone, as everyone knows, the board goes dark in December. So uh, hopefully, due notice is given with regard to credentialing, and we'll you know we'll adapt however we need to for privileges. Is that acceptable, Ms. Dalton? Okay, thank you very much. So with that, that's item G. That wasn't 87th percentile time management. Um, so, so we are now at seven o'clock. We have closed session. Um, we actually have two important items, uh, trustees. So we're probably at around 20 to 25 minutes left. Um, uh, Councilor. Thank you, Chair Bouquet. The quality committee of the board will now go into closed session to consider item H2. With that, uh, we'll close, uh, we'll, we'll come back, but uh, uh, this is the end of the open session for the October 25th, 2023 QPSC. Everyone have a good evening. On the last Wednesday of the month, uh, November 29th, not November 22nd. Everyone have a great night. Thank you. Bye.